and welcome to Explore, the University of Exeter's podcast. I'm Cameron from the Student Communications team, and this episode we are joined by Professor Patrick Devine-Wright from our Geography Department, who has a background in Human Geography and Environmental Psychology. Patrick has led efforts to ensure insights from social sciences to help inform local, national and international decision-making on climate change. He is also Chair of the Devon Carbon Plan Task Force, who are considering the earliest credible date that should be set for net zero emissions. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the podcast, Patrick. Thank you very much, Cameron. Could you start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your academic background? In terms of myself, uh, I'm Irish, I'm from Dublin, um, but I've been living in the UK for about the last 30 years. So yeah, in terms of my intellectual journey, in a sense, um, I did an undergraduate degree in Trinity College in Dublin in psychology, um, and then I went on to study a master's degree in environmental psychology and, and really have been interested in the environment and how humanity and the environment interacts ever since. And of course, that's a that's an area of interest which spills across lots of disciplinary boundaries. Uh, it's very much important to human geography, of course, but also lots of other disciplines like environmental psychology, environmental sociology, land use planning, etc., etc. So I've ended up in a geography department here, and uh, I've been a professor at the University of Exeter since 2009. So just over a decade now I've been here. So what kind of research areas have you focused on during those 10 years? I like to do research that's uh, uh, theoretically informed, but I also think academics uh, should be doing stuff that's kind of of interest and of use to society more broadly. And uh, maybe for that reason, over the last couple of decades, I've had a particular interest in what's now being often called sustainable energy issues or energy transitions. And that really starts with the climate change problem and the fact that we have been exploiting fossil fuels like coal and oil and gas for the last maybe two or 300 years. And it's the basis of the wealth that we experience in this country um, uh, from the industrial revolution onwards. But we have to change. We have to stop using fossil fuels because of the greenhouse gases emitted. And we have to very quickly and very rapidly start using low carbon energy sources of which renewable energy is the most obvious. Wind and solar and uh, hydro and all those kinds of things, tidal and wave, uh, that's really where we need to go. And the lucky thing is that our country is uh, abundant in those resources. Uh, So what we need to do is kind of reorient and redesign our system Uh, to try and cater for that. And the interesting thing about that from a social science point of view is that it's not just an engineering problem. It's not just about changing one technology to another. It has huge implications for our everyday lives. Yeah, so as a social scientist, how have you explored some of these big climate topics, like sustainable energy transformation, for example? I guess I've been interested in it from a behavioural point of view, but also from a community point of view. Uh, is there a role for communities in energy transitions? And if so, for what uh, what purpose? So one of the hats I wear is that I, I've been on the board of Exeter Community Energy for the last five or six years. And I was chair of that organisation for a year. And that was about, uh, you know, looking to see if there are ways to encourage people to own renewable energy technologies and be part of a community collective scheme, which brings people together and strengthens community ties whilst at the same time tackling the climate problem. That's really interesting. So you mentioned that a lot of your work is based on community behaviour. 
So why is it important for communities on a local level to be involved in transformational climate projects like renewable energy? It's really important because at the end of the day, if society generally and if communities in particular, and I'm, I'm talking about communities now that are often labelled host communities, you know, the com people who have to live near this stuff, if they're not persuaded that it is good for them and, and uh, good for the country generally, you know, these schemes just will not get off the ground. Um, and when I began researching this area maybe 15 years ago, uh, the main concept that was exercising policymakers at that stage was the NIMBY idea that, you know, you have all these NIMBYs out there that are really making it difficult for us. You know, we've decided to change over and have more wind energy. And, and when you ask people in surveys, they all say they think it's great. And then you turn up in a local area and propose a 50 megawatt scheme proposed by some multinational company and suddenly they're all up in arms and we've got to find a way to get around this and, and, and make sure we can get on with it. Uh, and the problem with that framing is that it just sees communities in a negative. You know, the communities are the people who get in the way, they're awkward, they're difficult, they're irrational, they're selfish. A whole host of really unhelpful assumptions about why people object to schemes, rather than saying, actually, is there something wrong with the way we're doing the energy transition? Why is there such a gap between energy policy decisions taken in London and the lived experience of people on the ground in areas directly impacted by the infrastructures? So I think the kind of research I've been doing uh, with colleagues over the last 15 years has been looking at things like, how do you make it more fair? Um, how do you make sure that uh, uh, local communities don't just receive all the costs, but might receive some of the benefits of these projects as well? And there's different ways of organizing that. Um, but one of the ways is to actually put communities in charge and give them opportunities to own these projects rather than always being at the receiving end of projects which are being proposed by often multinational companies where most of the profit disappears outside of the local area, even outside of the country. And then the second strand, not just about fairness, is about place. And for a very long time since I've been a, an undergraduate student, really, I've been just fascinated by the kind of connections that sometimes people grow between uh, themselves and the places that they really feel a kind of connection to. And um, I've written you know, papers and, and a couple of books I've been involved in around place attachment, sense of place. And really trying to see uh, whether that's part of this story of how do people connect with um, big infrastructure projects which are likely to have radical implications to landscapes and places and is that part of the, the story, the explanation for why sometimes these projects don't go quite as smoothly as policymakers would like them to go. So you mentioned there about the connection to place and the not in my backyard or NIMBY idea. In the last two years or so, we seem to have seen a lot more discussion about the urgency of climate crisis through both the climate emergency declarations and the large climate protests. So from your research, do you think there's been a change in community attitudes towards climate issues and some of the big changes needed? because of things like Extinction Rebellion? I certainly think that the uh, the 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 increase in the use of the climate emergency narrative is really important. It's a really interesting change over the last three to five years. 
It has the prospect to completely revise the way we handle climate change. Because remember that the, the policymakers have known about climate change as a problem since the mid to late 1980s. And the IPCC, which is a body I'm involved in, has been producing assessment report after assessment report after assessment report across those three or four decades. And it hasn't really made an awful lot of difference. What's happened over the last couple of years is that we now have really quite strong social movements like Extinction Rebellion. We have people taking to the streets saying enough is enough. We have to do something now. We have to do something significant. It's about structural change, not just behavioral change. And I think going with that, we have some really fantastic leadership. Uh, we have, you know, we have we have young young teenagers taking to the streets on Fridays, you know, embarrassing their parents, saying, "Guys, you're messing it up." You know, it, it, we're going to have to live with this. And and you know, people my age and, and and older, we now know the mess we're making of the environment. And uh, you know, future generations are going to be paying the price for our own inability to change and change quickly. So, I think leadership like people like Greta Thunberg and obviously David Attenborough as well, people not afraid to say the harsh truths and lessons to people in power. Um, and in, in some ways, I think society, you know, we as communities, we as citizens, need to tell our elected leaders that they have to do something. If they don't get it from us, then they won't take bold policy decisions because let's face it, you know, I'm not a politician. I wouldn't particularly like to be in a sense, but you know, they, they get voted in and they want to get voted in again. And if you tell people, okay, I'm gonna take this away from you. I'm gonna take that away from you. You will no longer be able to do this anymore, even though you've had to in the past. You won't be able to fly on holidays to the Mediterranean or I'm gonna make petrol twice as expensive as it is now or something. You know, you haven't got a chance. So they are in a difficult position. But if we give them a clear steer, then they have to follow. So I think the climate emergency narrative and the social movements around it have made it more difficult for politicians to simply say, oh, actually, people just really care about health or education or security. The environment, it's just way down their list of priorities. It's much more difficult to ignore now. And, uh, you know, a really good example of that is the decision by politicians and policymakers in Devon to have a citizens assembly in a few months time. Uh, so there'll be a, a one taking place in June, July. And, um, you know, this is a new kind of politics around climate. And I think it's very exciting. And it gives, uh, for want of a better phrase, ordinary people a chance to really have uh, the opportunity to discuss the nitty gritty of specific, really difficult policy issues around climate change and to make recommendations back to policymakers that I think they will find very difficult to ignore. You know, um, So I think there's lots of really exciting stuff going on at the moment and it, it bodes well, but at the same time, there's absolutely no room for complacency at all, given the size of the threat facing us around the world. On that point about a citizens assembly in Devon, can you tell us more about what this and the Devon Calm Plan is and what they aim to achieve? Okay, well, just like the university, um, in 2019, which is amazingly two years ago already now, um, local authorities around Devon and, and around the country really began declaring a climate emergency. So, um, you know, that was a public declaration that they admitted that this was now so significant that, um, that any further delay was simply untenable and concerted action and rapid and urgent action was needed. Uh, but it's one thing to declare a climate emergency. It's very much another thing to actually do something useful about it. And uh, so what, what's needed to turn emergency ideas into action 
is a very clear idea about what are the emissions that are taking place at the moment and what kind of actions can you take to reduce those emissions over time. And for example, I can speak even from a university point of view, it's actually very difficult to tie down where are the emissions coming from and how much are they? You know, from a university point of view, we found that the data simply wasn't there two years ago. We didn't know what the university's carbon footprint was because nobody was looking for it. But uh, there, there are lots of complexities in working out the footprint of an organization. So, for example, if I choose to drive to work, then that is part of the university's emissions profile. Um, but nobody's really been, been looking at that. Um, you know, actually identifying it in the first place and then calculating it is a very challenging task and having good quality data is very important here. So what happened in 2019 was that the local councils across Devon and Tinbridge and Torbay and Plymouth and Exeter, um, they all declared emergencies and then started a process of trying to work out what to do next. Um, and so I was asked to chair a task force of about 15 experts who are, uh, have been tasked with coming up with this carbon plan and looking across all of the different issues in climate change. And climate change is so difficult because it covers so many issues. So you've got to think about transport, you've got to think about your buildings um, and how much energy they use, particularly for heating and cooling. You've got to think about energy and how you uh, generate electricity and how you generate heat. Uh, you've got to think about waste. Um, you've got to think about, um, I guess, lots of spatial planning issues. And then there's the whole food and land use question. Uh, what do we eat? How much meat should we be eating in the future? Where do we get protein from? What do we do with our landscapes? Uh, do we continue to do a lot of beef farming? Um, how much would people accept lots more onshore wind turbines? Uh, for example, in and around Dartmoor, where it's quite windy. So really quite challenging questions. And we've been puzzling over those for the last 18 months. And um, we released a, a kind of a first version of the plan, an interim carbon plan a few months ago for public consultation. And the great thing is that we've had over 1300 public responses to that, making comments. And the overwhelming majority were expressing support for the kinds of actions that we were recommending, which is fantastic. But there are a small number of issues which are very complicated and very challenging for the policymakers. And what we're gonna do in the summer with the Citizens Assembly is to pose those small number of very tricky issues to them and get them to think about it over the course of several weekends and come up with some recommendations which will go back to the task force and go back to the uh, Devon councils from all the way across the county and put into the final version of the plan. And then hopefully it will be implemented from next year, from 2022. And we were talking about it just this morning in a task force meeting, and I can't stress enough how much the next 10 to 15 years are absolutely crucial. As a, as a whole country, we have a target of net zero emissions by 2050, which can seem like quite a long time away, but really the action needs to happen now in the next 10 to 15 years, or we simply won't reach those targets. Um, so there's a lot needed to happen in the short term. And uh, because we're talking about infrastructures like buildings or power stations, you know, if you build something now, it will be in the ground for a very long time. These things don't get replaced every year or every couple of years. Um, and, and it's still pretty shocking to me, for example, that we're building new homes at the moment, which are connected to the gas grid and will be using gas, for example, for the next 30, 40, 50, 60 years, when we need to be putting in heat pumps, for example, and moving to different kinds of technologies that we already know exist and we already know we need 
and yet we don't quite have the building regulations to push forward yet. So there's lots of difficulties, but we must per persevere and get on with it um, because there's no time to lose. It's really positive to hear there's lots of support from the community for this plan. What are some of the unique climate challenges we face in Devon and the wider Southwest? I think it has uh, some distinctive challenges that many other parts of England in particular don't face. So the thing about Devon is that we're a very large county and 90% of the land area of Devon is rural countryside, farmland and designated areas like Exmoor and Dartmoor, uh, which obviously have constraints, uh, planning constraints over what you can do there. So, um, you know, lots of other parts of the country you know, they'll be more urban, uh, more suburban. Um, so there are just different challenges here. It's got maybe a half and half rural urban population, but predominantly rural landscape. So that brings several uh, specific issues relevant to climate. One is to do with transport. Um, you know, how do people get around in a way that's not reliant on petrol or diesel vehicles? How can we improve, for example, public transport that's lower carbon? Uh, and there are very tricky issues here because you can try and deter people from using petrol or diesel cars, which can end up really disadvantaging them in a very unfair way. And so climate change you know, can be viewed as a, an issue of climate justice as well. It isn't just about um, reducing emissions, but also making sure that you don't leave anyone behind or any community or any place behind. And we have quite uh, scary and frightening levels of, of social inequality and uh, social deprivation in, uh, across parts of Devon, not just in the urban areas, but in, in, in rural parts of North and West Devon as well. And we must make it uh, clear that we don't leave any communities behind in this process. So there's, there's lots of challenges there around transport. And then there are also challenges around land use. We have a distinctive landscape, which people are very attached to. It's a very popular place to come for that reason, for people to come on holidays. And if we were to simply stop beef farming, if we said, you know, we're not going to do that anymore, no more beef in Devon, you know, not just from a dietary point of view, but a land management point of view, it would have huge implications for people's, um, uh, you know, for, for the landscape, but also for people's livelihoods uh, across the, the rural swathes of Devon. And so, you know, these changes, we, we have to take people with us. Uh, we have to have important but challenging conversations about the fact that change is necessary, it's mandatory. We can't, uh, climate change isn't optional, it's facing us all. And yet we have to make sure that we bring communities with us in this journey towards a lower carbon future. And that's the challenge. Will the plan make recommendations about what we as individuals can do to help achieve net zero? or is it more aimed at policymakers? It's not, it's for everybody. Uh, so what we're trying to do is to design a, a plan which speaks to everybody. Um, so one of the things you can do, if you look at the Devon, Devon Climate Emergency website and you look up the plan, uh, there are ways of navigating your way through the material in the document where you can, you can pick out bits depending on what you're particularly interested in. So if you're really interested in energy issues, you can go straight to that. Or if you're particularly interested in farming issues, you can go to that. If you're interested in communities or individuals or households, you can go to those as well. So we've designed it so that you can kind of slice it up in different ways and work your way through the document in different ways, depending on your interests. Um, now, uh, we were just talking this morning about uh, engaging uh, 16 to 24 year olds. So Cameron, I'm going to take a, a very vague punt here and say that you're probably not over 25 or under 16. Am I right? Yes, you're right. 
Well, I mean, what we found, we, we just had a public consultation over the last two or three months, and we had 1,300 responses, which is fantastic. But I think the number of responses we had of people aged between 16 and 24 was just three or 4%. It was pretty minute and disappointing. And I think um, the problem with a carbon plan process that's kind of written by people like me is that it appeals to people my age. And we had an awful lot of responses from people who were over 50, but we really need to reach out to people who are um, aged under 25 and, and under 20 and youth in particular uh, as the next six to 12 months of the rest of the plan process moves forward. And that involves communicating in different ways and getting, getting, getting messages across in Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat and maybe not having huge long-winded passages of text, but making it more, a little bit more accessible visually as well. So I, I, I guess I would just put a request out to anybody who might be listening to this podcast at some point to, to tune into that material, because we know and we need your engagement with us. This plan will not work if it only appeals to a certain slice of the Devon population. Everybody is impacted by climate change and everybody needs to be part of that solution. So we're hoping that that will be the case in the future and we're doing our best to try and design it such that it, it will work that way. Thank you. I'm sure people under 25 will have a really positive contribution to make to this. So for many, this has been an extremely difficult year. What impact do you think COVID-19 has had on the climate change agenda and the public focus on climate issues? That's a really good question. It's actually a very difficult question to answer. Um, I mean, I've actually been part of uh, conducting some re research myself um, using the concept of a finite pool of worry. So that's a kind of academic jargon for saying, basically, people only have the capacity to be worried about so many things at one point in time. And if you just add more and more issues, they just can't deal with them and they're, they're, they, they kind of dismiss them. So we did some survey research um, early last year uh, in, in 2020, which suggested that levels of concern about climate change had not dropped significantly in society at large in the UK with the advent of the virus. But that data was collected in June. So I would say that the jury's out to some degree over whether uh, it continued to ebb as the year went on and people felt, uh, people experienced further lockdowns. Um, there's no doubting that uh, Extinction Rebellion and the, the actions on the streets have been um, discontinued because it's it's more difficult to gather in large groups, obviously, because of the, the virus um, and social distance rules. So it, it has certainly been less prominent in the media than it has before, um, which would suggest maybe that it's, it's out of sight, out of mind a bit. But on the other hand, I think there's been a a kind of a, a re-engagement with nature and a re-engagement with people's local areas through the social distance restrictions. And um, it was certainly remarkable in, in the first weeks of the uh, lockdown last year, early last year, you know, people, I think people generally have realized that they can hear birds singing in a way that they didn't before because the traffic is less noisy and less concentrated. And it has been a wonderful opportunity for people to regain contact with the nature and the natural world. I actually spent a bit of time before Christmas back in Dublin visiting my dad because he was a bit ill at the time. And the numbers of people who are now turning to, uh, you know, sea swimming um, is extraordinary. You know, what, what would have been considered just a total mad, crazy idea of getting into the sea in October, November, December, uh, it's become hugely popular and hordes of people down at the sea. 
So, you know, there, there is that contact with the natural world. And, and on top of that, we have David Attenborough with his wonderful uh, TV program. So I do think that the message is getting through. Um, I think people are, are reconsidering their connections with nature. What's less clear is what's going to happen when restrictions are lifted. And the fact is we have vested interests in society in the form of airline companies who are only too happy to take out full page ads in newspapers with seductive images of people lounging by a poolside in sunny weather. And, you know, in January or February of a winter, you count up thinking, oh, I wouldn't mind some of that. But there's the whole emissions thing built into that. And so we, we need to really reconsider how we move around and the implications of that. Um, and, and I'm not against travel at all. I, I think travel is fantastic. And I've been lucky enough to travel to lots of places around the world on holidays and as part of my work. But we need to find ways of flying that doesn't cause greenhouse gas emissions um, and, and rethink what, what, what traveling means. And I think this is particularly important from a university point of view because academics love going to conferences. And, and, and to be honest, the oxygen of our work is engaging with people from lots of other countries and collaborating with them and going to conferences around that and if you cut that off you know you you really do scupper learning uh, by students and by staff and so we want to continue doing that but we can't continue to pollute the atmosphere at the same time that that's too too big a price to pay i think brilliant so do you think some of the changes that have been made as part of the lockdowns might have a place in the future as part of the kind of net zero plans I'm thinking like working from home, um, those kind of things. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, to be quite honest, Cameron, I'm not sure I should be saying this too loudly, but I, I always tried to work from home a bit anyway, because I, I could get different kind of work done. Um, it, it depends. But compelling people to be in the office all the time, I think, is is, is definitely not the way forward. Um because of the nature of the work we do. It's about getting the blend right and uh, making sure that uh, uh, it works for, for different kinds of staff or for students, depending on their circumstances. Um, and, and of course, you know, home environments aren't necessarily suitable either, particularly if you've got young children and you're homeschooling. So um, it, it's a very, very challenging issue. But I, I do think that uh, uh, the assumption that, that work is done in the office uh, is gone. You know, it's it's not going to come back. It simply isn't going to come back uh, for lots of different reasons. But uh, and I think that's a good thing generally. Um, as long as we're we're mindful of people with different uh, circumstances and we're able to accommodate those different needs uh, in moving forward. Thank you. So finally, what part does our university community play in helping shape climate policy and reaching net zero? Well, I think the university has a very, very important role to play. Um, for at least 10 years now, the university has been making the most of the connections we have with the Met Office and talking about how wonderful it is to have such high caliber climate scientists in our ranks. And we've been teaching around climate. We've been uh, doing interesting things like grand challenges and making sure that the students are aware of this. So. Um, there is wonderful stuff going on at the University of Exeter across our campuses around this issue, but it is simply impossible for us to say that we are a centre of research excellence if we are polluting the atmosphere at the same time and emitting greenhouse gases. That is not possible to continue with. It's, 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 it's an absolute disaster. So um, what we have to do side by side with our learning and our scholarship and our research and our teaching on climate change 
is to fundamentally change the way our, our organization works in terms of the emission of greenhouse gases. And, and our future as an organization, in my opinion, is simply untenable unless we can make those two things happening side by side. And there are enormous opportunities for us um, to learn from our students who probably are quite far ahead of us in terms of their activism and their engagement. Um, and we can, we can encourage those kind of skills about communicating climate change and uh, getting active across the whole student body, no matter what subject you do, whether it's French or um, you know, electronic engineering, I think it's relevant for everybody and everything. And as I said, there were very difficult issues around you know, how we, we use electricity and heat on our campuses. There's been a kind of an assumption for quite a long time that bigger is better in, in universities. The whole growth agenda, just like we have in economics more generally. And I, I, I do wonder, uh, well, certainly there's a need to decouple um, getting bigger with uh, uh, polluting more. We need to make sure that doesn't happen. So. Uh, a lot of difficult issues uh, to to get with, but I think absolutely we have such an important role to play, and we can be a catalyst. We can help others along the journey. Um, universities are often called anchor institutions, which simply means that they are there for the long term, and lots of other things happen around them in a kind of economic and social ecosystem in the areas, the the regions in which they they are based. And Exeter can have a massive positive effect in the southwest of England, in Devon and Cornwall in particular, in kind of catalyzing transformative change, working with community groups, working with councils, providing the know-how that we have, but we often leave in academic journals. We need to get it out there and we need to engage with all those policymakers and communities and people on the ground and share that information and work with other universities to set up networks of transformative action. There's so much we can be doing. And uh, I, I do hope that we do, get on with it over the next five to 10 years and take the word emergency seriously, not just say it, but do it. That's our challenge and I hope we rise to it. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today and joining us. It was really interesting to hear about your work and Devon Carbon Plan. Cheers, Cameron, and thanks for the invitation. All the best. Mm -hmm.